His name is Bishop. He's as methodical as a machine, as precise as a computer. Bishop is a mechanic. He specializes in bodywork. This one has to be done first. I'll handle it the way I always do. There may not be time enough for that. I'm not some wild Cleveland shooter. I don't cowboy. Hurry! On to the corner! Set up! My jab! <laughs> Bishop is a master of manufacturing death by accident and murder by natural causes. <laughs> For 20 years, his performance has been flawless, but then he made his first mistake. You ever hear the term mechanic used outside its normal meaning? Yeah. A hitman. So? So there we are. You've got a partner, Mr. Bishop. Bishop knows you build a killer from the ground up and teach him one cardinal rule. Remember, no second chances. Dead sure or dead. And when he's ready, you cut him loose. How long till she goes? Now. There's only one problem with teaching somebody to kill. He may become too good at it. Good enough to replace the teacher as the top mechanic. Welcome back to The Bloody Pit. This evening, I have a new guest on the show. I'm very excited to speak with this person as I've been reading his work for quite some time and here lately, actually hearing his voice on the occasional commentary track. He is an expert on the subject we're going to be speaking about this evening. And of course, uh, that means I am here to learn. This is Paul Talbot. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good, Marty. Thanks for having me on the show. No, no, no. I'm very, I'm very happy that uh, I should have reached out to you, reached out to you long ago, back when I uh, first uh, got my hands on uh, your your book on the Death Wish films. Uh, simply because uh, I have a, I have a, a, a strange fascination for those. Probably not as big as your fascination. I mean, you you wrote an entire book for God's sake. Yeah, it's uh, funny. I always need to. Whenever I do a podcast, I always need to warn everybody. I when I start talking about Charles Bronson, I can't stop. So. You, this one might go on for a while. You may have to do a lot of editing. So <laughs> it's not a problem. All right. Um, when I when I asked you to be on the show tonight, there was a part of me that thought uh, he's probably talked out on some of these movies. But I had to. I have to say, it's like you start talking about um, favorite Charles Bronson films, and I I know what my top three are uh, right off right off the top. I know exactly what they are, and the film we'll talk about tonight is one of those three. But I have to say that the other. Two in my favorite three Charles Bronson films are uh, Violent City, yep, and uh, Hard Times, yep, and uh, I think that 
coupled with the mechanic, I think they're three of the best movies he ever made. And it's not that he didn't make, you know, a lot of other really good movies. And so I, just as a, an initial question to get the ball rolling, uh, what is, if you can even do it, I know it can be difficult, what's your, what's your either your favorite Charles Bronson film or your favorite three? Um, I would say, uh, just going, I would say of the 1970s, they would be, uh, uh, just like the ones you said, Violent City, The Mechanic, Hard Times, uh, Death Wish, and and Mr. Majestic. So those are my top five Charles Bronson movies of the 1970s. Oh, oh do you have a, do, oh, I gotta ask, do you have a, a, a list for the 80s? Yes, I do. Let's see. Um, <laughs> this is great. Uh, Death Hunt. Okay. Ten to Midnight. Oh, yes. Murphy's Law. Oh, okay. Kinjate, Forbidden Subjects. All right. And Borderline. Those would be my top five Bronson films of the 1980s. Oh, wow. I've, I've still not caught up with Borderline. I have to check that out. Yeah, Borderline is a, re- is a very interesting movie. That movie was actually, it's an atypical Bronson film. It actually was originally uh, cast with Gene Hackman. And when Gene Hackman dropped out, that's when they went after Bronson. So it was a totally different uh, type movie. You know, it's not a typical Bronson movie. It has a lot more dramatic material than is normal than what he usually than what you usually see in a Bronson film. And unfortunately, Borderline is kind of hard to find. It's hard to find in a good format. It's come out on DVD, but not in a really good copy. Supposedly, the uh, the film elements are either damaged or misplaced. So that's why there has not been a uh, definitive blu-ray of borderline but i think if that one comes out that will be uh be better uh evaluated because i think people will be surprised by that one that well, how different say, love and bullets uh, which i only got to see in the past couple of years uh the, the version that's on dvd doesn't look very good either i wonder if there's a i wonder if there's a similar problem there with decent materials yeah love and bullets and um borderline were both produced by uh lou grade uh ITV is the name of his company, and yeah, yeah. a lot of unfortunately, a lot of his films were um, not particularly cared for. The in, uh, a lot of, uh, of course, we have to go back to the original negative uh, film to get the best quality. And what a lot of these uh, companies did, they transferred it to video and thought that was good enough, and they m- misplaced or actually threw away a lot of the film elements. So that's what happened with a lot of the ITV stuff. So hopefully. Uh, the Love and Bullets and Borderline elements aren't completely gone, but that company, unfortunately, a lot of their movies are not in good shape because they were not particularly well cared for. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I when, when I asked you uh, what 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 to talk about, um, we both kind of leapt at the mechanic, and I kind of thought that that might be an easy an easy call for you because, of course, the uh, the recent Blu-ray release of the film you did a commentary track for. That's right. I did a commentary track for The Mechanic. I've actually done 13 commentary tracks now for Bronson films, and The Mechanic was one of them, and one of the ones I enjoyed the most. The Mechanic is available on uh, Blu-ray from Scorpion Releasing. It Uh used to be just sold through the boutiques, but coming this Tuesday, which I think is um, June 6th or June, whatever the date this coming Tuesday is, uh, The Mechanic is going to be available more widely on uh, Amazon.com and the other sites. And the cool, thing, excellent. 
Yeah, and the reason I uh, I wanted to talk about the mechanic tonight is because I think that's probably the best introduction to Bronson. If you know somebody who's never seen a Bronson movie or hasn't seen too many of them, that's the one to start with, I think. Because that one starts with a 20-minute sequence with absolutely no dialogue, just uh, Bronson going through the act of setting up a, a hit. And there's no dialogue at all. The whole 20 minutes uh, is carried completely by Bronson's charisma. So if those 20 minutes don't turn you into a Bronson fan, nothing will. Well, yeah, I think that the opening, it's pure, the, the opening of this film, and almost the, the last few minutes of it as well, are just completely silent. Uh, all, you know, there's, there's no dialogue whatsoever, and you're just watching this man work. And it's absolutely fascinating. It's pure cinema. It's the kind of thing that, that film does so well when it's handled properly. And it's just an expert example of how to go about telling a story visually. It's just wonderful. It's, it's, it, it communicates everything that he's doing perfectly, even though you don't know exactly, you know, on your first viewing, you're, you've got no way to know exactly what he's exactly going to do. You don't know what, what he might be up to. You have no reason to suspect, you know, some specific thing going one way or another, but you watch him go about setting up this, uh, well, this, this assassination and it's, uh, ingenious because he's doing it in a way that, that makes it look like an accident. And that is this particular character, Arthur Bishop. That's his method of murder. He never, you know, just walks up to someone and pulls a trigger on them he sets things up in such a way so that their deaths look like accidents of some sort and it's fascinating it's it's one of the things that immediately drew me to this film decades ago when i first saw it it's amazing to watch it's such a great conceit and it's incredibly well played and that first like 15 to 20 minutes of the movie sets everything up and you're willing to after that follow this film almost anywhere it wants to go Right. And it also shows you that silent opening. And as you said, um, the ending is also uh, no dialogue. And also the middle of the movie has a action sequence with no dialogue also. So the film also is a good example because Bronson first achieved most of his fame over in Europe and in the Asian territories, in foreign territories. Yeah. And of course, being um, because a lot of his work was mostly silent, you know, he wasn't sold by his voice, you know, it was mostly his charisma, his physical presence is why he was able to do the different countries without, yeah, and without dialogue. I, I was unaware when I first saw Violent City from 1970 that that was, uh, well, I knew it was an Italian production. I knew it was a European production. I think it's Italian, French. And it's, I, I was aware while I was watching it, that it was simply amazing. And that's another movie, by the way, Violent City, starts off with about the first 10 or 12 minutes with no dialogue once again. Right. And it's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible thing. I, knew, I know that uh, when, he, when he was in, when he was kind of one of the leads, or at least maybe a co-lead, depending on how you look at, look, look at it, in uh, Sergio Leone's uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, that may have been like the first big starring role that he would have been seen in in the United States, maybe the same year you see Via Rides, but, I mean, it's not the same thing. And it, oh, before that, he'd been easy to pick out of a lineup in things like The Great Escape and The Dirty Dozen and, st and things of that nature. But once you get to Once Upon a Time in the West, he is front and center, and it's his charisma that carries that rather stoic character through that movie, and that becomes exactly what he's doing 
in the majority of his films throughout the 70s, and it's what makes them, to me, it's what makes them just incredibly engrossing. His, right. He had that screen charisma that doesn't, you know, it doesn't make you sit back and watch him. It makes you lean forward and, and be really curious about what he is up to. Yes, absolutely. In fact, screen charisma, all the great uh, movie stars of history, of course, you can learn acting, you can study acting, but charisma is not something you can learn. That's what the great stars are born with. So Bronson certainly had that, uh, certainly a, a commanding presence. Even if you didn't know who he was, even if he never became a movie star, if you saw him like at a, a bar or walking down the street, as soon as he walked in, you would be like, who is this guy? You know, certainly an arresting uh, presence. Well, the character that he plays in this movie, it's it's fascinating. Arthur Bishop is, he he's such a solitary human being. Uh, he he lives alone. He clearly makes more money than he needs. He he's perfectly perfectly wealthy as far as uh, his job uh, makes him more money than he needs. I would assume uh, certainly from where he lives and how he lives. He he can he can sample the finer things in life. But what I love is that he is so solo. He is so alone that. He doesn't. He he. Does, he's not married. He does, he has no family. He has uh, no connections to. I mean, at least no emotional connections to anyone outside of people that he may have known when he was a kid. He doesn't have any adult relationships uh, outside of his job, and the the film gets this gets this across very effectively by by the fact that he is called by uh, someone who was a friend of his father's early on in the movie. Uh, character uh, um, played by Keenan Wynn to ask him for a favor because they're both involved. You know, they're both involved in, uh, shall we say, the uh, La Cosa, Cosa Nostra, and he's uh, he's asking for him to kind of intervene. He's asking for Arthur to intervene just to say say something to uh, help him out. This older gentleman who knew him when he was a kid. Little bit that we get. Uh, I mean, that that if that is the only real, you know friend connection that he has left in the world and it's a hangover from his childhood that's pretty telling on a lot of different uh, on a lot of different levels and then we also see what we at first think is him visiting his girlfriend who turns out to be just a prostitute who goes out of her way to make the the sexual encounters with him feel to him as if they are you know part of some you know, long-term relationship between the two of them. This is a sad, lonely man, and uh, it's it's almost as if that's the only way he knows how to function in life. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's a very deep character, the Arthur Bishop character, the mechanic, very deep character. We see, uh, we learn from the Kinuin character that he was, uh, uh, the mechanic's father was also a hitman, so obviously yeah. he looked up to his father, which was not a good thing, because obviously uh, emulating his father led to him had this horrible, lonely life. And we also and, uh, and we also see he develops this relationship with the younger apprentice. But then finally, at the end, he again realizes that he's not doing a good thing by training this apprentice. He's actually yes. continuing the evil, continuing the mental illness. 
Well, you know, considering the the younger apprentice is being played by Jan Michael Vincent, uh, who's who's who has the ability to uh, to generate enough smarm on screen in about two seconds, right. <laughs> it should it should it should have been a warning sign to begin with. But you know, we all we all are in those uh, those day to day relationships where you ignore the the telltale signs, right? <laughs> right. And it's it's a very deep film because again, it's not a pro crime film. A lot of people might criticize it and say it's glorifying killers but it's not you know when you ultimately when the film ends no. you realize that uh that life of crime was not um was not a good thing for the mechanic well it doesn't seem to be a good thing for almost anybody involved it's uh it's a it, it does not romanticize the life of someone who does this for a living right um and and there comes a point during the story of what you know as you play as you watch things play out in this where at least for me it's subtle but i started to to get the impression that um there's really no other life this guy could have chosen it's almost as if certain avenues of of life were kind of cut off for him without him really wanting to acknowledge that they were because regardless how when the film begins for the first piece of it you think that he's possibly a freelance hitman some kind some person who takes jobs and uh, the only time we see him uh, attempt to refuse a particular hit uh, he is told in no uncertain terms that it needs to happen and so we can see that there may have not been as much choice on this solitary lifestyle as we might have you know, we might have thought initially this is not a man who who uh, maybe had a lot of options on the table and got pushed in this into this position. And I think that something else I think that a lot of people tend to ignore in this, uh, he clearly has got some medical problems that seem to be anxiety-created. This is a man who's, who's popping uh, what looked to be uh, some kind of antidepressants or uh, some kind of anxiety medication. We're never really given a, a good a good look into exactly what that is, as far as I can tell. Right. And so he's on medication to control. I mean, he we, we see him pass out at one point at what looks to, for all intents and purposes, at first what might be a heart attack actually seems to be more of a panic attack. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Very And, and uh, it does make it a little bit clearer in the script. He is taking a combination. You know, he's taking, whenever he tries to go to sleep, he's taking anti-anxiety medication, and he's also taking antidepressants. And it's obviously that he's become addicted to them, where he's been taking them for so long that they no longer work for him. So as you said, he's also having panic attacks. He's having these horrible nightmares of... Uh, the things he's done, he's obviously starting to be haunted by um, the the deaths that he's created. And it and I like the fact that he is uh, he's an intellectual man. He's someone who who reads, who enjoys uh, fine music and fine art. That is how he spends his time is enjoying the quote unquote finer things in life. And it's clear that he's had the time and opportunity to uh, the character. I mean, the character he's playing is forty four, and he's been at this for. At this uh, at this juncture in his life, obviously for a couple of decades, and so we get the sense that this is a man who, given the opportunity and given what his interests are outside of work, uh, would have had a very different life. But uh, the the anxiety seems to be I mean he the the anxiety seems to be cropping up more and more frequently the, as a problem 
once the, as the movie begins, and so we're kind of joining this character at a at a at a at a specific very uh, very important point in his life. And he's also um, one thing I found very interesting. He also is very meticulous about the way he looks in terms of his clothing. He wears you know yes. different outfits throughout the film. Uh, obviously, some very expensive leather jackets. So it's almost as if he's literally trying to cover up. He's trying to create a different persona. It's like he's trying to cover up the the evil that's inside of him. And all, all that stuff, he lives in that fantastic house, uh, wears these fantastic clothes, listens to all this nice classical music, but none of that can really, uh, you know, cover up the evil that he's corroded himself with. Oh, I know. The, the house is, is picture-perfect and completely clean and, and, and gorgeous. Uh, his cars look like they were just washed, you know, an hour before he gets into them. I mean, there's a there's a a uh, kind of airbrushed beauty to everything that he surrounds himself with almost as if it's the, the, the there's there's a way to that, that's the, his way of keeping the the kind of ugliness of his job at bay and i think that another thing the way in which he goes about conducting his job this very meticulous way of doing uh his job where he very carefully studies the the target and formulates a plan so that everything looks like an accident I think that it's 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 incredible that this is this this is an, a mental exercise for him more than it is a way of making money. And it seems to be that uh, one of the things that I, one of the things that I noticed, and the movie doesn't kind of, the movie doesn't really draw this out uh, in a way that that I think that I, I kind of wish it it would when he's working when we see him planning. And studying his, you know, studying his target and getting everything, getting everything in place, he's thoughtfully smoking a pipe. He's not taking those pills. He's taking those pills in his downtime when he's between jobs, right. almost as if once he has the job in front of him, that's when he can relax because the pressure's off. He knows what it is. He knows what the problem is, and he can attack. He can attack it, and it's almost as if he relaxes into. The, the, the mechanics of doing the right. job and uh, but but without that you know without that task in front of him he can enjoy the relaxation for a period of time but then the anxiety starts to get to him the longer it goes on and, and it, that, that that's once again it's just a really interestingly drawn character right. and another, another thing is thing of course important thing is you know all movies good movies start with a script and this one was an original script by Lewis John Carlino who was a playwright, and he wrote the script originally as a novel, but then he stopped the novel and turned into a screenplay. And the screenplay got a lot of attention. In fact, uh, Kirk Douglas was originally interested in playing the part, and then it was in development with Cliff Robertson as the mechanic and Jeff Bridges as the apprentice. And then it ultimately was offered to Burt Lancaster and George C. Scott before Charles Bronson got the role. So. It began as a script that was well regarded with a lot of top actors had been uh, interested in it or shown it at some point. Well, I found it fascinating to learn that one of the reasons some of the actors like George C. Scott apparently said no to it almost automatically was that originally the the there was a homosexual uh, storyline between the uh, the uh, bishop character and the young apprentice which right. would have been absolutely yeah, fascinating. 
but well, well, well ahead of when I think Hollywood was willing to do that. Yeah, the original script was pretty blatant that they were uh, gay, and then when the film came out, Louis John Carlino uh, finished his original novel, and there was a novelization, and the novelization does make it pretty blatant also that uh, there was a gay relationship between the two men. And of course, when you watch the film, you can read anything into any film. So you can watch the film with that in mind, thinking that they are gay characters. Or you can also look at it where it's kind of like a father-son relationship or an older brother-younger brother relationship that's gone bad. So it's a pretty deep film that you can look at different ways. Well, yeah, until I uh, till I read about the uh, the uh, original intent, it always it always seemed to me as if this was the, the Bishop character essentially looking for someone to pass these skills on to. Therefore, kind of a father-son right, situation. Right. One thing also that's really interesting, this is a film you can watch repeatedly because you see different things each time. For example, uh, it was in the script too, but the, during the movie, the mechanic in his house, he's staring at a painting. It's a 15th century painting called The Gardens of Earthly Delights by the medie medieval Dutch painter I'm going to say his name wrong. Harmonious Bosch. Harmonious Bosch. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bosch right. painting, which is... And then when you look at that picture, you'll see um, images of nude young humans at an orgy. There's uh, creatures that are half human, half animal. There's fish with human faces. There's a hungry, unhappy cheetah. And there's a pig frolicking with humans. And there's also uh, knives and fire. And then throughout the film, you'll see that Bishop comes across those different images. Throughout the film, he comes across a lot of the images that are seen in that painting. So that's something that if you watch that film um, several times, you'll catch that. When I On my commentary track for The Mechanic, I point that out when you see the different images throughout the film that are in that painting. So that's one element that I really enjoy about the film is that, that uh, surrealistic painting that comes true for The, for the Mechanic. Well, what's wild is I'm I'm very familiar with that Bosch mm -hmm. painting, uh, but usually it's because uh, I I see it used as a touchstone and an image to uh, emphasize things in uh, a lot of different horror right. films, and so having it pop up in this was was absolutely fascinating, especially the amount of time that the character spends looking at it, the amount the, as if. He, I mean, there there's more than two scenes in the movie where he's standing in front of it and carrying on a conversation, but not looking at the person he's speaking to. He's looking at the right. painting. And, uh, man, now you've given me a reason to go back and rewatch the film again because the uh, the, re the realization that some of these images pop up within the film, I'd not, I'd not given... I'd not given that the slightest bit of thought simply because my my impression was that it was there to signify kind of the 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 way in which possibly bishop kind of saw the world around him in other words this was more of a a painting of a reflection of how he viewed the world than anything else but maybe there's more to it there's even more to it than that although believe me that would <laughs> that would be more than right. enough right there and even at one point uh, the jim michael vincent character is looking at the painting so at that point, we're seeing that he is becoming transformed into Bishop, not only uh, becoming a, a professional killer, but picking up some of the cultural aspects that the mechanic has. And also, when you watch the film, um, I point this out in the commentary, too. They start to dress alike. They start uh, even having the same belt buckle. So it reaches the point where they become uh, literally clones of each, of each other. 
it's it's fat it's fascinating now one of the I, I i i kept expecting there to be a moment when the young, young apprentice and we should we should tell everybody uh we well, yeah we're probably gonna end up spoiling this movie for anybody who hasn't seen right. the mechanic perhaps now is the time to uh, go out and uh either rent it online or uh buy the blu-ray which whichever would be the best for you pull out your old dvd of it and and watch it or rewatch it because I think that uh, I really want to dig into several aspects of this. And the thing is, we, we see uh, we see Bishop take out... We, we see him arrange the death of the McKenna character, played by Keenan Wynn, who, as we've already... The film has already established as an old friend of the family. And he... Uh, he knows about his bad heart, and he arranges for him to have to, you know, to be scared into doing something that will strain his heart, and then he dies. And the apprentice he takes on is McKenna's son, uh, who seems to be a bit of a ne'er-do-well, someone who, you know, when we're introduced to him, he's, uh, he's uh, you know, begging money from his dad, a thousand bucks for whatever gambling debts or whatever he's, you know, up to at that point in time. And so our introduction to the character has us not trust him as a, as the partner he eventually turns into, to, to say the least. And then um, the fact, the fact that Bishop actually trusts this guy enough to, to make him a, a partner, an apprentice, to teach him, essentially, to take him under his wing and teach him the, the, the ins and outs of this particular kind of job, uh, it almost seems as if, you know, there's a bit of a, I'm going to use a term here, death wish, because <laughs> wouldn't, right. wouldn't someone be a little upset to find out that this person killed their father? Uh, but one of the things, and once again, people, I'm, I'm going to emphasize that there's spoilers involved here. We, we learned by the end of the film that he didn't even suspect that his father had been killed. He thought it was a heart attack, just like everyone else would have thought. And so that's I, I love that aspect of the story, and that something that you, you keep expecting to be a complicating element isn't. But it's another one of those anxiety things that was probably driving some of the problems that Bishop had. Let me, let me ask you this, Rodney. What... When did you first see the mechanic? Do you remember? Oh Lord, I was probably a teenager seeing it on VHS. Okay, all right. So long, yeah, long ago. Right. Um, and I'd say over the years, I've probably watched it five or six times. It's it's kind of hard to know. Uh, the first time I, I have to admit, the first time I've ever owned it is when the Blu-ray came out because I was I had not seen it in so long. I just couldn't wait to watch it again. Right. And did you um, were you surprised when you first saw it at how different it was and how like downbeat it was in the ending uh, on my first viewing you mean right that's a good question i know that i loved it immediately right uh, that that's a that's a firm memory that will, will not go away it was one of those fascinating moments when uh, a movie is more interesting than you thought it was going to be in other words we've all seen hitman movies but right. this one was a cut above, a real cut above. Right. Something else we should talk about too, of course, they remade this film uh, starring Jason Statham. And yeah. uh, this is the mechanic, the original mechanic is a movie that they could never make today. It was so, it's so downbeat and the characters are so um, uh, unlikable. When they made the remake, it's like they had to change it. They kind of had to give the mechanic 
everybody he killed, they had to let us know that they were bad people who deserved to die. And then, of course, <laughs> yeah. the mechanic himself uh, didn't even die at the end. The apprentice did, but the mechanic himself did not. Because nowadays we have to make every movie has to have a, a sequel. And True. Of course, and the, they, yeah, and there was they, a sequel to the Statham film, yeah. That's right, right. So that's an example there of the mechanic, the original mechanic, a movie that could never be made today, which was proven because when they did remake it, they had to change it so much and, uh, uh, what's the word, kind of whitewash it, I guess, would uh, <laughs> yeah. downplay it. Okay, don't get uptight. Not me. Ah, oh, bullshit. Look, every time we're on this subject, the same thing happens. As long as we're wrapping it out in your terms, everything's okay. But the minute I have a question or I want to know something specific from you, you either shine me on or go out for coffee. What the hell is going on? You're pressing pretty hard. You better be damn sure you want to know. This is not freshman philosophy time. I'm sure. You ever hear of the term mechanic used outside of its normal meaning? Yeah. Where? My father used it. It's a dealer, guy who works game tables. Anything else? Sure. It's a shooter. A hitman. So? So there we are. And that's your action. Yeah, that figures. I'm telling you this because there are times when I could use a backup. Wouldn't have to spread myself so thin. And you seem to have the aptitude. You do this for money? Money is paid, but that's not the motive. It has to do with standing outside of it all on your own. I'm gonna teach you all I can. After that, you can choose how you want it to go. You in? Do I have an alternative? There are alternatives to everything. You've got a partner, Mr. Bishop. Associate. One of the things that I think makes the mechanic really, really rewatchable for me uh, as a matter of fact, uh, this is this is true of a lot of movies from this period. is uh, is attributable completely to the director's choice to film on location. Uh, I am absolutely fascinated by getting a look at real places from a specific time and date to to let us kind of give us this this cinema verite window into the past, and that. Even even if I'm, I, I love the film or hate the film, it doesn't really matter. If I get that, if I get a little bit of that on location stuff, the real stuff, I, I, I kind of feel drawn to watch it again and again just to get that look. And once again, that's something that is heavily in evidence, not just in the first fifteen minutes of this movie, but of course we even get the, we even get a little bit of that when they uh, when they they go to Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. Well, the, the that was a that was typical of Michael Winter. He was he was a director who I don't think he I don't think he shot on sets very much at all. Is that is that true? Do you are you aware of this? Yeah, that, 
Yeah, Winner always, in his early in his career, he made low-budget films in studios over in England, but he always preferred to shoot on actual locations. And like you said, it's very rare that he didn't shoot. I guess one notable exception would be uh, Death Wish 3, which takes place in New York. Part of it was, a little bit was filmed in Brooklyn, but most was filmed on an actual set that was built in England, a set, uh, New York City set. But usually, as you said, Bronson, I'm sorry, winner uh, shot on location, not just the exteriors, but also the interiors. What? So, for example, in, um, in The Mechanic, the opening scene is filmed in the notorious Skid Row area of downtown Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, Michael Winner and uh, Charles Bronson returned to that area. They shot part of the Stone Killer and Death Wish 2, also in Skid Row. And Skid Row is a fascinating um, location. It turns up a lot in a lot of uh, 1970s movies, including a lot of television films and uh, TV episodes. It's so weird. The Stone Killer feels like an older film than The Mechanic, and yet it was made afterwards. And I can tell you why it feels older to me. The Stone Killer, you have character, you have these cop characters showing up wearing hats, uh, which was something that, you know, by the, by the 70s, men wearing hats was was just fading out. It was oh, absolutely pre- pretty much gone. But in The Stone Killer. They're, they're wearing hats, and it feels almost like a movie made in the late 60s instead of the, the early 70s because characters are wearing hats. And in The Mechanic, it feels much more natural where, yeah, 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 nobody, nobody wears hats anymore. What are we doing here? Right, right. And, the, uh, and that house that uh, Bronson's character lives in, The Mechanic, that was an actual house, the interior and exterior. That was a special, bizarre, uh, custom-made house that was uh, built on the side of a mountain. So that's a fantastic location. Oh, and, it, and it's absolutely gorgeous. That house, yeah. yeah, and that house turns up again in uh, Truck Turner. There's a scene where Isaac Hayes shoots some uh, shoots some villains there. <laughs> I love that. I love that and movie. At, and at one point at that house, uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor, Diana Ross, and Prince all lived in that house at some point, and it's still there. A friend, a couple of friends might have tried to go see it, but it's heavily gated, so you really can't get to it. Uh, how many movies did uh, Michael Winter make with Charles Bronson? Uh, they made six movies together. Half of them were the Death Wish movies. The first they three made, Death Wish uh, movies, is that right? That's right, yeah. yeah. They made um, Chateau's Land, The Mechanic, The Stone Killer, Death Wish, Death Wish 2, and Death Wish 3. So that was uh, uh, six movies they made together. Uh, I, I, I had been aware that Michael Winter had had a, a very fruitful uh, working relationship with Oliver Reed in the 60s, where they made, I think, five or six movies together then. Uh, my, my particular favorite being uh, I'll Never Forget What's-His-Name, which I think is uh, just a, a brilliant satire takedown of uh, advertising and, and the, the, the way in which we commodify things in, in, in the world. Uh, but it, it, it seems to me that the way in which I learned about Michael Winter as a director was he was one of the first directors I ever heard. When I heard his name, I heard him being criticized uh, as as being some kind of uh, some some kind of hack of some sort. And so when I finally started seeing some of his movies, uh, and when I was a teenager, I was going, "Okay, this guy's. I, I can't see the hacky part of this. I'm sorry. I just don't see how this guy's." Uh, you know, whatever whatever might make him a bad filmmaker, I, I don't see it. And then, uh, I, 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 I don't know if it's because 
as he went along. He, 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 he you know, making those Death Wish sequels did, didn't paint anybody in glory as far as, you know, the, 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 the uh, shall we say, intellectual upper crust of film-going experience might give them. I mean, it's one of those things where, um, yeah, 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 you know, Death Wish... It had it had a, a massive negative reaction in the press to a, to a certain degree, even though it was a massive hit, and of course a very well made film. And one could say, yeah, okay, Death Wish, as a film, certainly inverts the intent of the book it was adapted from. But the I I've never understood the the anger at uh, Michael Winter that I've heard from so many critics over the years uh, and I just wonder if he he had somehow be if he if he'd somehow become someone that was just that, that it was so easy to dump on him that they that they did it or if there was some instigating thing in the past that had made him persona non grata amongst uh, amongst film critics I've never understood it though well like you said he started with comedies uh, the jokers and I'll never forget what's his name and he did some interesting stuff. He did a western called Lawman in 1971 with Burt Lancaster. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, the strange thriller uh, The Nightcomers with uh, Marlon Brando. So he did a variety of movies, and he got with Bronson when he was doing the um, the movies the Chato's Land, which was a western. He was raising money for that, and they told him that uh, since Charles Bronson was so big overseas, they knew that Bronson in a western could make its money back. They told him, if you get Charles Bronson to be in Chateau's land, we'll finance it. And uh, Michael Winner didn't know Bronson, but many years earlier, he dated Jill Ireland, who went on to marry Charles Bronson. So Michael Winner got in touch with Jill Ireland, and uh, she uh, put him in touch with... Uh, so she put Michael Winner and Charles Bronson in touch, and uh, Bronson agreed to do Chateau's land, and he uh, enjoyed working with Winner. And then when uh, Bronson was offered the mechanic, he asked for Michael Winner to direct the mechanic. So that started their relationship. And the mechanic was Winner's first uh, urban thriller, I guess you would call it, or urban action film. And that, of course, became the genre that Michael Winner was best known for. When you think of Michael Winner, now you think of urban thrillers. So his association with um, uh, Bronson started that. And I think, like you said, his films became, you know, as Michael Winter got older, it's almost as if he didn't seem to care anymore. They became really extreme, uh, really brutal. So it's almost like he kind of killed his, uh, uh, any chances he had of being taken seriously ever again. And it may have been his persona, you know, he had, when he was doing interviews, print interviews and television and radio, uh, Winter had kind of a brash, kind of a arrogant tone. And I think that kind of turned some people off based on the persona Winner had in the different uh, interviews and the, the relationship he had with the press. That would make that would make a lot of sense. Okay, if he if he if he was perceived as being some kind of asshole or jerk, uh, right. then and also and most importantly, uh, at the very late stage of Michael's Winner's career, after he stopped making movies, he became a uh, a restaurant critic, a very abrasive restaurant critic. Huh. And was he and was known for that? And he also directed a lot of commercials and appeared in them, insurance commercials, which were shown uh, all over England. So the younger generation was like Michael Winner. He's that idiot who um, does those insurance commercials. How can you take him seriously as a filmmaker? <laughs> so a lot of young, a lot of young film buffs uh, wouldn't even 
watch his earlier films. They couldn't even take him seriously. A movie, uh, they wouldn't even think of watching a movie made by Michael Winner, a silly guy who makes these insurance commercials. Well, it's funny. Just recently, I mean, I'm talking in the past month and a half, uh, I finally caught up with his uh, Agatha Christie adaptation, Appointment with Death, from 1989. And uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'll be honest, I, I sat down to watch it, and I had no idea he had directed it. And so that was that was a bit of a surprise. I don't know. I he he he. As soon as he stopped making uh, movies with Bronson in the eighties, it's like he 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 disappears from my radar. And I I was just shocked to go. Oh, well, he was still making movies. Wait a minute. And wait a minute. He was making a movie in nineteen ninety nine. How did this happen? You know. Right. Right. Yeah, that was a canon movie. Of course, he made um, Death Wish two, which was canon's verse first big hit. And uh, and then he also made Death Wish three for Canon. Then he also, you know, he he did some other movies with Canon. And when uh, the Canon cousins broke up, he also did uh, the Wicked Lady, which is like a period adventure comedy with Faye Dunaway. Oh, I remember that film. That's a weird film. Right. Yeah. And then Appointment with Death um, was another uh, Canon movie. One of the All Star Agatha Christie ones. And that one's kind of the, the Appointment with Death is one that people like because that one doesn't have too much of the silly Michael Winter extreme sensibility. That one's pretty much a straightforward adaptation. It has some of his humor in it, but it doesn't have any of the really grotesque type stuff that was in his later films. It has a great cast, too. I mean, you know, yeah. Peter Ustinoff right. back playing Perot and, and uh, mm-hmm. Laura McCall and uh, Carrie F- I mean, it's right. just a really great cast. You know, it's, uh, right. Like I say, it's just, I... It's, it's weird that I know of a director, you know, by name and have seen a number of his films and have kind of paid attention and I sit down to watch a movie and only then realize, oh, he made this. Wait a minute. How did this happen? Usually I'm a little right. bit more clued in than that. But, uh, oh, it's something, something interesting also. Like I said, uh, he started with comedies, and that was the genre he liked the most. So when he made Death Wish, which was a huge hit, he got offered all these urban thrillers, but turned them down because he wanted to go back to comedy. So he made a movie called Wonton Tong, The Dog That Saved Hollywood. which oh, was that uh, is a notorious film. Yeah, it was a, it was a big-budget film, expected to be a huge summer hit, but it flopped. So at that point, he kind of... Uh, lost the momentum, at least uh, commercially, that he had obtained with Death Wish. So it took a while for him to get back. In fact, he didn't come back until Death Wish 2. After the original Death Wish, Winner did not have a hit until uh, Death Wish 2. Yeah, but he was in there punching and trying. I mean, uh, the Sentinel, the the horror film from 77, and the, the, the that rather odd adaptation of The Big Sleep with uh, Robert Mitchum in 78... Uh, he, he was in there swinging. Don't get me wrong. He was trying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was in there. He uh, he kept making movies. Yeah, I'm not saying that. He kept making movies. He worked with a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the British companies. The other ones, uh, uh, Lou Grade that I mentioned earlier, ITV, he did a couple uh, with him. So as you said, Winner never stopped working. He was still making movies, but none of them were hits until he did uh, Death Wish 2. And that was a film that Man, I guess it was guaranteed to be a hit to a large degree. Uh, was it? Was it? Was it a hit? Now that I think about it, I'm not sure. Was Was Death Wish two a, a hit? I didn't see it until it hit pay cable in the early '80s, of course. But yeah, Death Wish two was a hit. Like you said, it was designed to be a hit. Uh, all the money went towards Bronson. The film itself was very, very low budget, and it did. It was a hit. It was a hit. Um, in fact, it was a the biggest hit that Bronson had had in a while. And if so, um, 
Yeah, so Death Wish 2 was a hit, not just in the U.S., but over in the Asian territories, especially Japan, especially um, overseas. So Death Wish 2 uh, brought Michael Winter back, brought Bronson back, and was the launching point for canon into the bigger leagues. It's always seemed to me that Death Wish 2, and full confession here, I saw Death Wish 2 before I ever saw the first Death Wish. Okay. <laughs> just uh, just because we had HBO and that's what I got to see, right? And right. so uh, for me, for, for me, when I when I when seeing Death Wish two was a little bit of a, a little bit of a trial by fire. Let's be honest. That is a right. uh, that's a film that it that it's almost as if it's designed to attempt to push every button that it can to make right. an audience uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the I mean you got. Uh, you get you've got rape you've got ridiculous murders you've got uh you know the the, the death of an innocent you've got uh, i mean there's just all this stuff just built into it to uh and it's it's a competently enough made film uh as long as you can accept that somehow you know paul kersey never got arrested right. uh, as long as you can accept that this is a sequel and somehow this guy is not behind bars okay okay we'll roll but the uh the uh, uh, they're, 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 I enjoy. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy the the Death Wish sequels uh, for what they are, but there there is a there is a feeling that I cannot get away from, which is Death Wish was best as a one and done. Kind right. of the same way the mechanic is best as a one and done. You right. talked earlier about the the remake. They 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 made damn sure that the at the end of the remake of the mechanic. Uh, you could you you are you are shown very clearly that uh, the main character played by Jason Statham was not actually killed by his apprentice. Once again, spoiler alert: the apprentice murders the father figure in both movies. Sorry, <laughs> if that spoils it for everybody, but that is a very that is a very uh, intense and and and. Uh, kind of an amazing thing for the for the film to kind of reach as a capstone to 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 end the to end the story. It's it's a wonderful kind of perfect way to end that kind of story. It's it, I mean it goes all the way back to you know Greek tragedy for God's sake. Well, that's like yeah, you said um, Death Wish Two was the first Death Wish you saw, and that's not unusual. Many people have seen one or two of the sequels before they see the original, and they're actually let down by the original. The original, of course, is not an action movie. It's like a dark psychological thriller. Oh, yeah. Many many fans who watch Death Wish for the first time are, uh, the younger fans especially, are let down by it because they're like, they thought it was going to be nonstop, over-the-top action, which it's not. So. No, no, no. The, the original Death Wish is a character study. That's right. That's what it is. Uh, right. it, it, I mean, it's a it's a very uh, calling it a dark drama is probably a good way to go. I've always thought of it as a character study, which is, of course, one of the reasons why... Uh, the, the sequels always feel so different because they're not character studies. I mean, they're, right. you know, they, they, they are uh, violent revenge pictures. And uh, don't get me wrong, that's what, uh, that's what the original Death Wish turns into. It's like one of the things that I think probably throws some first-time viewers for a loop, especially if they kind of come at the movies in a backwards-viewing fashion the same way I did, is that realization for a lot of viewers that there's, you know, Paul Kersey never, never catches or even comes across the people who, who disrupted his life the way that, that, that destroys him. They, 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 he never, 
he never gains any vengeance. That's not what the film is about. The film is right. about his reaction and his his uh, his desire for uh, violence after this horrible thing has happened to him. And uh, there, uh, I think that yeah, coming coming to Death Wish the original. After the after one or two of the sequels, probably yeah, I can imagine someone being kind of disappointed. But it's it's also to me, and this is and this is maybe a longer conversation. To me, it's the difference between a '70s action movie and an '80s action movie. Right. Uh, '80s action movies are Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Right. Uh, '70s action movie is The Mechanic. Uh, right. Uh, a you know something that. I, I would I would think of the '70s movies as more thoughtful, more deliberately paced, more careful about uh, the characterizations, more uh, detail oriented in how they set their stories in motion. The, the '70s movies always seem much more classically done as far as uh, constructing film, as con- con- constructing plots, making the story uh, effective. Uh, the editing style, the uh, everything about uh, everything about them feels uh, kind of handcrafted. Whereas by the time you get to the '80s, and this is not true of all '80s action films, but in general it is true that when you get to the '80s, it's all about you know cut to the chase slash cut to the explosion, and there's a there's a certain loss of depth that the 80s action films. Don't get me wrong; they can, I, I thoroughly enjoy them for what they are, but that is the tonal difference between a 70s and an 80s film, and which is why I think it's... I, I much prefer the 70s thrillers and action action films simply because they, they're better stories. That you're not, when you revisit those movies, you discover more, more interesting details. You discover something more thoughtful and more interesting on second and third viewing, whereas if you revisit it, most 80s action films, really you're just... You're just wanting to ride the roller coaster again, right? And that's, I think, um, the Death Wish sequels kind of like ruin the reputation of the original too. They kind of like taint the legacy, not only of uh, the original film, but I think also taint the legacy of Charles Bronson and Michael Winner as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Did you you first saw Death Wish two on HBO? You said yeah, yeah, Remember? it was HBO. Yeah, okay, right. Did you ever see the the uncut version of it? Uh, only years later. Uh, only in, uh, honestly, only in the past, I want to say six or seven years when it became when when, right. it, when it became available on kind of the bootleg market online. That's when I finally right. saw. I, I think it was marketed or or like touted as some kind of work print. So not until the past right. few years. Yes. Right. Okay. And were you were you surprised by how extreme that one was? The uncut version of the Death Wish version. 2 has always seemed to me to be that a perfect example of that thing that directors have learned to do over the past several decades, which is make the film with a lot of extreme violence within it that you're going to be perfectly okay cutting out to save something else. Right. Uh, I mean, every right. everybody has, ha- has had to learn how to do this. Uh, my favorite example of that is... Uh, Martin Scorsese knew that when uh, he submitted, uh, because he'd had the same problem with Goodfellas, he knew that when he was submitting uh, Casino for its first MPAA viewing, uh, he knew that he needed to have several things in there that he was going to be more than happy to cut. And one of the big ones that he put in there 
that was that everybody knew when they were making the movie was was one of those things was there was a scene where uh, Joe Pesci's character has a has a man's head in a vice and is squeezing the guy's head to get information out of him and the guy's eyeball pops out but of course the scene is right. in the movie but you don't see what they filmed because that's another one of those things where the director films it, shoots it, gets it all set in place so that he can use that as a negotiating tactic to save something else that he wants to keep in the film a lot more. Uh, the the longer version, right. that, that work print version or uncut version of Death Wish 2, feels like there's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. And boy, boy did he have to sacrifice a right. lot of it. And even the R-rated version, it's uh, oh, Death it's, Wish it's, 2 goes too far. Rough. I mean, it's... I, I, I try to think back. I can't remember uh, exactly when. I, I can't remember how old I was when I saw it. I know I was a teenager, uh, but I know that unless I was 25, I was too I was too young to see that movie. <laughs> I saw Death Wish 2 at the theater, and I, like you said, I was a teenager, and when I saw that, I was like, what the hell is this? That was just like, that, that traumatized me. Well, I, I mean, there, you know, there's a, there's a series of films. Uh, I look back, there's a there's this uh, I have a friend who does a podcast who that the underlying uh, genesis of it was the idea that you know he's just talking about movies that he saw at far too young an age uh, and right. uh, the the films for me like that uh, a lot of them were you know HBO staples things like uh, Death Wish 2 but honestly for a movie to have a real lasting undeniable effect i think it's it's things you see in the theater really that that carry a lot more weight you know that really kind of dig into your cerebral cortex and and and, and rarely turn loose and for me uh there were a couple of movies that i saw when i was a teenager when i was in high school that i probably should not have been allowed to go see but thank god i did uh right. there, there was this uh, insane spanish horror movie called pieces the, oh yeah, uh, I saw that in the theater when I was a teenager. Yeah, yeah, me too. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it warped my little brain pretty badly. Uh, I've talked about it at length in various in, in various times. Uh, you know, maybe one day I should be talking to a psychological professional about the particular <laughs> the particular effect that film had on me. I don't know, but another was Brian De Palma's Scarface, mm-hmm. where. Uh, the you know talk talk about you know filming things that you know you're going to cut so that you get it by the MPAA. Uh, there are there are things that are in Death Wish too that if I had seen that movie on the big screen probably would have you know would have damaged me a little bit. Uh, right. If I'd seen it when it came out, was it eighty? What what year did it come out? Eighty one, eighty two. Came out in the U S. in eighty two. Okay, eighty two. Yeah. Yeah, that, that I would have been I would have been fifteen. I, I'm, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> I'm not ready for that film. Come on. And what? Um, do you remember when you saw Death Wish three? Oh, years later. Years right. later uh, on VHS. I mean, okay. we're we're talking uh, sometime in the nineties. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I, I didn't, and I didn't catch up to. Uh, I didn't really take a good hard look at Death Wish three until about. I want to say about a decade ago. In other words, I watched Death Wish three, but didn't really give it the attention that I that I had given. You know that I that I really felt I should have given it. And so when I revisited it, it was uh, it was uh, kind of me going, okay, I need to watch the the Bronson films from the eighties that I've not seen. You know, I need to go ahead and finish these off. I need to go ahead and go through these. Um, right. And I and I hate to admit it, I'm still. I'm still in the process of, of checking some of those things off my list. I still haven't seen a few from the 80s. Uh, 
which is you know sad to be able sad to be able to say I only recently well <laughs> I got stopped dead in my tracks by finally seeing assassination from 87 which was huh. was not good um, right that is that is not a good film <laughs> I'm sorry right. it's just it's not um, right. but the the you know I'm a I'm a big fan of things like 10 to midnight uh, which I think is you know it's uh, it's a cop procedural slash horror film. It's it's right. an amazing amalgam of those things, and it it should not work as well as it does, and yet somehow it does. Uh, I remember thinking Murphy's Law was pretty good, but I I also I have never revisited it, so I don't know. Uh, Messenger of Death. I remember being kind of a low key change of pace to a degree, but I don't remember a lot about it. Right. Uh, the the movie that I really want to go back to, well there's there's a pair of movies, one from 77 and one from uh, 81. I want to do a double feature one night of White Buffalo and Death Hunt. Uh, I think that that would just yep. be a really good combination of those films and I've seen them both, but I haven't seen either of them uh, shall we say in the digital age. So I'm right. I'm overview for a, a rewatch of those. Good. Good. Yeah, I love the White Buffalo. I just did a commentary track for that and did a lot of research, and that's one I've really, uh, I've always liked it. I've really gotten a really strong appreciation for it now. Oh, uh, you know what? Strangely enough, one of the earliest Charles Bronson films I ever saw was, uh, and I don't know how, it was on television, commercial television at some point in the late 70s or early 80s, but From Noon Till Three, which is a great movie. But it is right. such an atypical Bronson movie. It's just such right. a great little movie, though. Mm-hmm. But I have spent some time in the re- I've I've spent some time recently catching up to um, to some that have kind of overlooked um, someone behind the door. Yep. Which turns out to be a really interesting movie. Uh, right. I, I I found myself absolutely fascinated by it. Uh, I've all I've always been impressed by Rider on the Rain. Uh, but the uh, and th- this this may be just out of curiosity since I've got since I'm talking to you just out of curiosity I got to tell you I have never thought Red Sun was very good. Oh really? Yeah, it never comes together. It's like mm-hmm. somebody went, okay, we can get these four actors from different countries. Uh, anybody got a script? Can we come up with something? Right. You know, do we have? It's like, and I don't think they really ever found a script. <laughs> it never feels right. like they found a script for that movie. I mean, on paper, you know, on paper, Red Sun should be the greatest thing ever. It's directed right. by Terrence Young, who directed right. three of the first four James Bond movies. Right? right. You got Charles Bronson, Tashiro Mifune, Alain, uh, Alain Delon, Ursula Andress. I mean, come on, this thing should kick me right in the face. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always watching it and going, was this meant to be like a five episode TV series? And we're watching the edited down version. What happened here? Right. <laughs> oh, I want to say this too, since we're talking about the, uh, the mechanic, uh, this June 24th at, uh, the Mahoning drive-in in Layton, Pennsylvania, uh-huh. there's going to be a Bronson, uh, 35 millimeter triple feature. Ooh. They're going to be showing, uh, the Mechanic, Mr. Majestic, and Death Wish 3 on 35mm prints. So I'll be there. I'm going to do a little brief introduction over the radio before each movie, and I'll be there. I'll have a table set up. I'll be uh, selling my books and some of the Blu-rays, too. 
Oh, cool! So I'll I'll, uh, I'll post something up about that on the blog. Uh, tell me something, okay. and this is mm-hmm. this is a very general question, and I don't know how often you get asked this, or if you've if it's just something that you've answered so many times in print form, you don't really think about it. What what was the first Bronson film you saw in a theater? Yeah, first Bronson film, a very strong memory. First Bronson film I saw in a theater was Breakout. Ah. I remember it was 1975. I was already a Bronson fan. I was watching his stuff on TV. And then Breakout was one of the first films that was uh, saturated release, meaning it plays all over the country at hundreds of, thirties, hundreds of theaters at once. The TV stations were assaulted with nonstop TV ads. The radio station was assaulted with nonstop ads. And it played at um, uh, a local theater. I was living in Beverly, Massachusetts at the time. Uh, the Cabot Movie Theater, which is still there. I was able to, I was elementary school. I was able to walk to that theater and see Breakout. So Breakout starring Charles Bronson. That was my first Bronson film. It was uh, a life change. I really loved seeing him up with a big screen. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, see, I was trying to remember what the first Bronson film I ever saw in a theater was. And I'll be honest, I can't, I can't remember. I remember wanting to go see 10 to Midnight. Right. Uh, but I, 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 I know I did not. So I, I, I hate to say this. I have to, I have to put this out there. I don't think I ever caught any of the great Bronson films, even when I would have been able to in the eighties. I don't think I ever caught any of them in the theater. It's all been on video. Did you? Did you were too young to see Ten to Midnight? Is that why you couldn't see it? Or do you remember? Well, I mean, it, it was eighty three, so I would have been uh, sixteen. Okay. So. It, it, at that age, uh, where I lived, uh, I was having to drive a fair distance to get to a movie theater. So okay. these things had to be planned. Right. <laughs> you know, you did you didn't go and and have the opportunity to. I'm going to see a couple of movies today. You know, you didn't really have that opportunity. It was it was you had to pick and choose. Uh, and at that time in '83, I believe me, if 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 whatever choice I was making, uh, that would have been one that would have appealed to me. But I know I didn't get the chance to. And then. The movies that came after that, I don't even remember them. I don't even remember them playing, uh, right. in, you know, in Chattanooga, which was the big city that actually had movie theaters that I would have to have driven to to see the damn things. So right. I don't think I've ever been able to see a single one on the big screen. And uh, the, the when you br- when you bring up that there's going to be you know they're going to be doing a triple feature at a drive-in, it seems like that to me would be one of the perfect examples of finally getting a chance to see some of these things. Right. Right. Did you ever see Breakout? I know you didn't see it at the theater, but have you ever, oh, have yeah, you ever yeah, watched Breakout? Yeah, it's it, great, great movie. I, I absolutely right. love it. Um, the thing is, that year seventy five, he had uh, he had three movies out that same year, and you know, Breakout, Hard Times, and Breakheart Pass. And right. I love all three of them. The I got to be honest with you, the weakest one is Breakheart Pass, simply because. Uh, every time I watch that movie, I can I can feel how edited down it is, uh, because there you can there are all these little there are all these little things that are there that point to the fact that it was going to be a longer movie with you know with with more scenes involving certain characters because there are certain right. actors in the movie that are only in like a scene or two and it's like you don't hire that actor for their for them to only really have one scene in which they speak. And right. you can feel that it was just chopped down to a certain length, and it's a, it's a real shame uh, because it's 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 a it's a it's a rock solid story, and they've really spent the money to get the period right, and it's just a it's a hell of a story. But it's just I I wish there was a longer version of Breakheart Pass. It really feels like it needs right. to be like fifteen to twenty minutes longer. 
Oh, but you know what I haven't seen? I still have never seen St. Ives. Okay. How do you, how yeah, do you feel about that a, one? Is it any good? Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's worth watching. Of course, um, it starts off good. It's like starts off like as a, a detective movie with like actual uh, sleazy Los Angeles locations. But then it the plot gets kind of convoluted, in my opinion. It has a, a very disappointing climax, but huh. it's still worth watching. Still worth watching. And I have to admit, there's one more from the 70s I still haven't seen, which is Telephone. Oh, okay. Um, yep. I, I hear mixed things about it as well. But, I mean, it's, it's directed by Don Siegel. How bad can it be, right? Right, yeah. It's a good one. It is, like you said, it's kind of disappointing being that it's a team-up between Siegel and Bronson. So it's disappointing in that respect. But it's still a good, solid one to watch. It's probably one of the key uh, Bronson films of that era. In fact, it was his last, unless I'm, unless I'm not thinking right now, it was his last uh, major studio movie. It's in a lot of ways the mechanic was is best described as kind of a, a classic two-hander because it is one of those things where once we have the apprentice character in place, it's uh, it's that wonderful thing where now the movie has a reason for the dialogue within it. In other words, we're not uh, we're not just uh, setting up plot, setting up story. We're actually having two characters. Uh, interact with each other, and through those interactions, we're learning more and more about them. And the thing about the uh, uh, the Jim Michael Vincent character, the the young apprentice character, is that his. I, I love that the, the if I had if I were to describe this uh, this film to someone in just kind of you know back of the envelope three three or four sentence kind of uh, way, I think that. Most people would expect there to be uh, a certain way in which the older assassin uh, brings the younger assassin into the fold. But what's really interesting is that it is a very roundabout way. He talks to him for a long period of time, over a number of days, if not weeks, before he's willing to broach the subject of what he does for a living. And he's essentially feeling this guy out for his attitude toward killing, toward dealing death. And uh, he advances his own philosophy about the fact that at one point in the movie he says everybody's a killer. And it's just a question of how they go about it or how they think about it. And it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating that on first blush... Most people would think this movie would be a much more crude affair in how it broaches the subject of moving from, uh, you know, presenting this uh, assassin character as a teacher to having an apprentice. And uh, a lot of movies who that have done similar things in the past, they either uh, you know join join the action already in progress, so we don't really have that. That uh, that beginning stage of trying to feel each other out and find out if this is if this is a, a safe subject of conversation for the two of them, uh, or we we actually have someone who is over enthusiastic about doing this this kind of work and therefore would automatically be coded as someone to not bring under their wing by someone as smart and as careful as the Arthur Bishop character. This movie. 
shows its intelligence. This is a strong screenplay. This is not something that is half-assed. It's the, the, the long gestation period for this and the fact that it was originally written as a novel really comes across in a, well, it comes in across in a lot of different ways, but that's my favorite point in the story that shows how carefully this was uh, constructed so that it feels like what would really happen. This is how these kinds of conversations would probably go about to keep the to keep the assassin safe. Right. What um, have you talked to any people who've seen this film recently for the first time? The mechanic. No, no. I'm hoping to uh, to kind of generate that kind of uh, that kind of thing because um, I, I, it's only recently that I realized that uh, there are a lot of people who had no idea that this was out on Blu-ray yet. And of course, it's you you mentioned at the beginning of the uh, of the show that uh, it's not been that widely available. Right. Uh, it's been it's been kind of a niche thing, and now it's about to go a little wider. Thank goodness. Uh, so I think. I, I don't know that it's a film that needs to be reappraised. I think it. Just, I think it's one that honestly just needs to be rediscovered. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk. Let's talk briefly about. Uh, well, the throwaway role played by Jill Ireland. Right. Uh, one scene. Uh, of course, the 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 joke that is very easy to tell is that uh, it's a Charles Bronson movie. Where's Jill Ireland? Where's Jill at? You know, she's she was his wife for good lord decades right uh, and uh, for a very long period of time it was it was uh it was like a package deal you you hire charles and you find a female role in that script somewhere for his wife uh got to admit uh i had this kind of thought in my head uh maybe they're doing a press junket for this film as husband and wife and uh, <laughs> i'm just imagining charles bronson going yeah i play a hitman in this movie and jill saying and i play a prostitute with no name yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say as a happy married couple is sitting there with a big smile on their face saying something of that nature but Jill yeah, Ireland's rarely had a really juicy role in, in some of these movies yeah well that's the thing that was the only of course as you said uh, Bronson always wanted to get Jill Ireland a role in all of his films usually as the lead and of course in the mechanic the only part was this uh, uh, very brief part of a prostitute and in fact, um, the producers of the movies, they did not want Jill Island. They were going to cast a different actress. They had somebody else in mind. So they had a breakfast with Bronson and told him that they didn't want uh, Jill Island to play the part. And Bronson just put his knife and his fork down, stood up and said, OK, find someone else to play my part, too, and started walking away. And needless to say, he was called back to the table and Jill Island had the part. So. It, it, it's a pretty thankless role. I mean, it, it, and she's don't get me wrong. Miss Ireland was was a perfectly competent actress. She's as a matter of fact, there are movies that she she did with her husband. Uh, and I'm thinking of things like Violent City, where she's phenomenal. I mean, right? She's really good in Violent City. Right. But this is a pretty thankless role, and to get. Honestly, to get a name actress to do such a small role, it's like, yeah, only because she's married to the to the star. That's the only reason she's in this movie. But it, you know, it would have been played by some, you know, possibly completely forgotten, you know, little actress with that would have been completely forgotten. And honestly, she makes it memorable just because of who she is. Uh, it's not a you know, it's not a big role. I mean, she doesn't even have a name. Right, and there was a. Um 
there was a second scene that we're to cut out. There was another scene where he goes and visits her again. And uh, he goes to visit her again, and she opens the door, and she starts reciting the same dialogue that she said earlier. But by that, and this, but but then he becomes repulsed by the game, and he puts his hand over her face, and he pushes her away violently, and throws money at her, and walks away. But Winter decided the scene was redundant, so he cut it out. So the pot was a little bit longer originally, but I think Winter made the right decision by cutting it because again, it was redundant, didn't need to be. Uh, uh, the the point had already been proven the first scene that he was just a lonely guy who had could not sustain any type of actual relationship with a with a woman. I also have to say I'm, I'm a major fan of the uh, the motorcycle uh, chase in, in yep. this film. One might say uh, I could I could easily see how someone would think, my God, that that chase goes on forever. I said, but honestly, it is so expertly done and it is so incredibly entertaining to watch. I don't have the slightest problem with it. I even, I even love the dummy dying in the fireball at the end. It's great. Right, right. <laughs> hey, if you could drive a, a dummy off a cliff and have him explode when he hits the ground, I you, honestly, you've got my, you've got my ticket money. Right. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a great scene. Really good. Uh, lots of good stunts in that scene, and that's a good example of a winner scene also because he puts in his humor where the motorcycles drive across one guy's car while he's watching it, uh-huh. and they interrupt this fancy party, and the rich people fall into the pool. So that's a good example of Winter taking a, uh, an action scene and turning it into a Michael Winter scene. As we said earlier, Winter liked to do comedy, so even in his action movies, he would put in slapstick comedy-type moments. Uh, I'm a fan of the score as well. Jerry Fielding is someone who I've always associated with Sam Peckinpah, so it's not really much of a shock to see him doing a film of this type as well. Right, and the interesting thing is, uh, as we talked about uh, earlier, that opening scene that does not have any uh, dialogue, it also does not have any, um, uh, also doesn't have any music, but Jerry Fielding also, he scored that scene with sound effects. If you listen to, if you watch the scene and listen to it you hear some people talking next door you hear a radio you hear a clock ticking so jerry fielding created all that so it's like music without musical instruments in other words oh wow i did so he he composed even just the uh the diegetic sound sound effects and things of that nature the radio broadcasts and things like that wow that's right yeah he created the uh for that opening you hear radio music you're a ticking clock a radio talk show. Yeah. So he spent about five minutes, you know, he spent about five weeks putting together the sounds for those first 15 minutes. So, that's so like you amazing. said, that's, yeah, it's a great, uh, not just his score, but also his, uh, what do we call it? The, uh, the music list soundtrack, you know, the, the, the special, the sound effects. Yeah. That's when you get to soundtrack instead of just score. Cause it's, it, that's right. Wow, right. I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize he did that kind of thing. Now, now that I think of it, I think that I was aware of, of Fielding doing something of that type for uh, for Peckinpah with uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, but I'm, I'm not positive. It's very possible. But, okay. uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's just, it's such a fantastic film. And like I say, I, I feel that it's it's ripe for uh, for rediscovery to a large degree because, well, first of all, it looks it looks really good on the Blu-ray, uh, but the thing is, it doesn't, it doesn't look... Um, they haven't done something to it to make it look more modern. It looks like 
you know, the period in which it was shot. And that's one of the, for me, that's one of the appeals of those movies as well, is they have a very specific look. And it's not just the shooting on location thing we talked about earlier. It's uh, the, the, the look of that period of filmmaking. There's, maybe it's probably, it's probably because I saw these when I was, when I was younger, but they just feel more like real movies to me. <laughs> yeah, well, during this era, they came out with a lot of, um, uh, lighter cameras so they could do a lot of handheld and get them actually on the locations. Also came out with a lot of fast film stocks, meaning they didn't need a lot of light. So they could go into these actual locations and light them using a lot of existing light. So it would look like not only were you on the actual location, but it would look like the lighting that would be on an actual location. It's kind of amazing. This is a $10 million movie. Do you have any idea what they, what they managed to make back with this thing? Because I know it was a hit. How much did the mechanic make? Yeah. Yeah, let me see. I think I have it. Um, and I assume a big chunk of that uh, $10 bucks went straight to Bronson's pocket. Yeah, Bronson got uh, 400000 for the film. Oh, okay. okay. Bronson's salary was 400000 So kind of like at this time, um, you know, these are modestly made movies. In fact, half of the budget would go towards Bronson's salary. And then they had the other half to make the rest of the movie. And to answer your question, I don't uh, I don't have this in a folder right now in terms of what. Uh, yeah, in terms of what the mechanic grossed, I don't know. I just know it did very well in, um, you know, foreign territories. It did not uh, it did not do as well in the United States as uh, as they thought it was, because, of course, this was the first time uh, the mechanic was the first time Bronson was back in the U.S. for an entire film. Oh yeah, the last he had been filming over in Europe. Well, that's right because before this, yeah, the Velocity. Yeah, it was. It was yeah. yeah, the mechanic. Yeah, the mechanic was the first Bronson film to be shot primarily in the United States since this property is condemned, which was filmed six years earlier. So this is like uh, the mechanic was like a return to the United States for Bronson. Nice. Well, like I say, I know it. I know it had to be a hit because. Uh, I just I, I was I would be curious as to just how much of a hit simply because, you know, he he was going for at that point he's making three movies of three movies a year pretty much for the next four or five years right and he he doesn't really slow down until like seventy seven which is probably a good thing considering his age I was shocked to learn he's the character he's playing in this movie is forty four years of old, years of age and he was 50 when he made this I did not know that I had to I, when I when I found that out I was a little shocked yeah from 1967 until 1971 Bronson had shot 11 films almost entirely on foreign soil so this was a very busy era of his life of course for the first time in his life he was getting a lot of offers and making a lot of money so he certainly was going to capitalize on that he was going to strike while the iron was hot uh, yeah smart move as far as i'm concerned like i said I, I i started this show by saying that this is one of my three favorite bronson films and of course it's very telling me being who i am that those three films <laughs> were all made in the 1970s and they're all you know to one degree or another kind of uh signature pieces for the directors involved i mean walter hill michael winter uh the <sighs> The, the, the joys of these kind of films are, uh, I, I do feel as I move into my, into my 50s that some of the things that directly appeal to me, uh, whether they be, you know, pre-code films of, the, of the, the, the Hollywood age or 1970s thrillers, uh, are the kinds of things that um, the love 
the love of will slowly die out as time goes by because it seems now uh, let's just say when someone describe well, someone someone says to me oh I watched this old movie the other night oh, I was yeah it's it's really old uh, it's called the Terminator I want to pass out I want to fall on the mm-hmm. floor and just have a stroke and be done because. I drove to the theater to see that movie. That is not an old movie you people need to reevaluate. It's wrong. Right. <laughs> but there is this uh, this concern I have where um, people are not people people who would really enjoy movies of this type, they're just unaware of them. And uh, maybe there's a lack of curiosity, maybe there's a a, a, a certain uh, you know distracted nature of whatever is currently in front of them. But the reason I, one of the reasons I do podcasts like this is anything I can do to just kind of remind people that this exists or to just introduce it to a different or fresh audience is probably a, uh, I consider it a service to the things that I love. And this is a movie that I think will, I mean, it, it, it almost, it doesn't require repeated viewings to enjoy. You're going to love it the first time you see it, if you're going to like it right. at all, but it rewards revisits. Right. And we've talked we've talked a little bit about that, but this is uh, you know there's a there's a Blu-ray of it now, so at least we've we've moved into the 21st century with it. It's not being left right. in the uh, it's not being left in the uh, only released on VHS pile that uh, more and more films are slowly being rescued from. Um, do you have you found that it's it's one? Do you have the same fear that I have that films like this are going to kind of get forgotten? Well, fortunately, I'm. Uh, Rodney, I'm seeing the opposite. You know, I'm seeing a lot of um, because for things to keep going on, we need a young audience. So I talk to a lot of people, um, uh, young people who are becoming Bronson fans. When I go to like some of the movie conventions, I see a lot of kids with Bronson T-shirts on and even some Bronson tattoos. Wow. Okay. So I'm actually, so I'm feeling pretty positive. There does seem to be a newer generation discovering Charles Bronson. Oh well, that that is that that's brightened my day. That's excellent. Good, yeah, yeah. That that that's great. Okay, cool. Uh, I did not I did not expect that good that, that happy an answer. Good, thank you. Right. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, we there's still a long ways to go. Of course, we still need to get more people turned on to Charles Bronson. But I'm feeling good about it, you know, because I'm seeing a younger audience uh, picking up on it. Oh so. well, that. I, I, I'm just I'm thrilled that that is true. If that if that is so, that is fantastic. I mean, now here's the thing: how many how many books about Charles Bronson's films have you written so far? I've written um, uh, Bronson's Loose, the making of the Death Wish films, which of course covers the five Death Wish films. For that, I interviewed many people, inc- uh, uh, including Michael Winner, who of course directed the first three, and then I wrote Bronson's Loose again on the set with Charles Bronson which is a sequel which covers more information about the Death Wish films that I found afterwards. Plus, I covered all of the other films that Bronson made after Death Wish. And again, overall, with both those books, it's probably about uh, about four dozen interviews. And I've been fortunate because many of the people I talked to have passed on. So I was fortunate yeah. to be able to capture the, that information while they were still alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've also, and I've also done about 13 commentary tracks for Bronson Blu-rays. And the books were available uh, Amazon.com, any place you buy books. They're uh, the Bronson's Loose series is what they are. The Bronson's Loose books. Do you uh, do you have plans for uh, any future Bronson releases? Yeah, I would like to um, do another book. I'd like to do a Bronson's Loose Volume Three. What I would do is 
there's of course the commentary tracks are kind of difficult you know you lose a lot of information a lot you can't put in so i would like to do all the information i did for the commentary tracks put them into chapters and do a bronson's loose volume three so we'll see what happens with that that sounds like a really good idea i know i know right. uh, much like the first two i would buy it so <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Talbot, I want to thank you once again for coming on to the show and discussing this with me. And just, you know, I, it became it became exactly what I was afraid it would be uh, or actually kind of look forward to it being, which is kind of a free range discussion of Charles Bronson sure. films. I kind of I kind of figured that's what would happen. I, I I've tried to pull us back toward the mechanic a few times and, and you know. It it, it 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 has a gravitational pull. Don't get me wrong, but uh, there are a, there's far too many things to talk about when you start talking about this guy's movies. Uh, thank you for indulging me. Thank you for thank you very much for coming on to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Roddy. Like I said, I never run out of things to talk about Charles Bronson, so I was glad to glad for the opportunity. Uh, maybe once I uh, do my White Buffalo Death Hunt double feature, okay. we can we can talk about those two movies. All right, that'd be good. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Good night. Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize, I'm the host and creator, and I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now, I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) So if you want to find us on Facebook, you can find us by searching for Podcast Free For All. And if you want to look for us on Twitter, we are Free For All Pod. And feel free if you want to comment, join the group, send messages, all that stuff.
Thanks once again for listening to this episode of The Bloody Pit. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, uh, strange bits of movie trivia or ephemera that you'd like to uh, lob at the show or uh, at me, I, I'll, I'll duck, I promise. The email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Anything you want to say, let us know. Uh, who knows, you may end up generating an episode just from whatever weird comments you make in an email <laughs> to us. Um, once again, very pleased that Mr. Talbot was willing to come on and talk about the mechanic. And, uh, of course, as you could hear, the topics of uh, quite a few other <laughs> Charles Bronson movies were uh, circled around and uh, talked about quite a bit. There are about, a, I'd say, a good half dozen Charles Bronson movies that I could easily be enticed into talking about at length. And who knows, in the future, that may well happen. Uh, in the meantime, once again, thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and we will talk to you again very soon. Quite needs a score.